grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, 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 welcome to California Haunts Radio tonight. And uh, I want to welcome you guys. Man, it's getting cold here now. Just starting to cool down. You know, we've had some really good spring days and kind of like, what well, I don't know what they call them. In, what is it, Indian summer? And uh, it's starting to go away now. So <laughs> we're starting to feel it. Sweatshirts and all that. Anyway, welcome, you guys. Uh, we got a great show for you tonight. Um, you can see I got my electrical system fixed. Um my name is Charlotte, and I'm going to be your guest for the <laughs> sorry for the next hour. I am the owner and operator of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We are 35 strong, up and down the state of California. We also have members in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. Uh, if you want to check out our past shows, uh, you can check us out at www.californiahauntsradio.com. And if you want to check out our paranormal team, you can do that as well at www.californiahaunts.org. And uh, you can see the kind of cases we've done and, and whatnot if you're interested in our services. Anyway, again, I want to thank you guys for being here. we got a special show tonight. Um, I'll hopefully I get his last name correct because, as you guys know, I'm, I'm horrible. Uh, Steve Ubaini is going to be with us tonight. And he's written three books. Um, and, hope, and, and the plan is, is that... Uh, he'll be on a couple more. He'll be coming on a couple more times because we're going to go over one book at a time, which is cool because it gives me time to read it. And um, so tonight is Princess Diana, and I I read the book, and it doesn't come out like you think it does or how you suspect, you know, because you hear all that stuff in the tabloids and you hear all you know the speculation in the documentaries and stuff, and and um, Steve's conclusion isn't what you expect. It, it totally opened my eyes, and I was just—I just—I was dumbfounded. So uh, I hopefully you will enjoy that. I'm really hoping you enjoy that. Um. So without further ado, I'm going to bring Steve in, and then don't leave after the end of the show because I've got some announcements. Uh, ah, today's not working. I've got some announcements to make. Okay. All right. So here's Steve. Here's Steve. Hello, Steve. Hi. It's great to be on your show. It's great to have you on. I know we had a we had a little back and forth there. I had a little bit of personal stuff going on. I didn't know if I was going to make it or not, so I'm actually thrilled to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here. I really am. And I'm looking forward because I know this probably won't be your first trip here because, like I said, you know, you got two other books. So, you know, we're going to be going over those, too, at some point. That sounds great. Actually, I've written four books. I wrote okay. two on it. I wrote two on Elvis. <laughs> right. Oh, I saw it today. This, because the story continued. So I had to do like, you know, kind of like the continuation of the story. So it was kind of weird. Um, and the next one's going to be on Nikola Tesla. So we're going to have oh, a cool. lot to talk about. Yeah. A lot That's going to gonna be about. awesome. But if, if you if you like tonight's show and you want to come back, be my guest, because I would love to talk about the other books, too. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. You totally blew my mind with the Princess Diana book because it did not go the way I thought it was going to go or the or the popular theory, so to say. Well, it's funny how my books differ from what I call the official fiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
I I do things a little different. I'm <laughs> I'm fact based, and I let the evidence run the show. I don't curb the evidence; the evidence runs it. So I run all of my suspects through motive, means, and opportunity, as you saw. Every single right. book is laid out the same way, right. and I let the evidence guide me wherever the evidence goes is where it goes. So my books are a little different. And it makes sense. I mean, the way you lay it out in the book makes a lot of sense, you know? And, um, yeah, I was just shocked. I just never thought of that. And just like, I'm not going to give it away, but the connection to a well-known airline in in there kind of took me aback, too, because I, I, I wouldn't have dreamed that that com particular company was involved in what they're involved in. Yeah, there's um, – I can run down the suspects quick so people can kind of – Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. So people can kind of like, uh, you know, get that square in their mind. But um, the royal family, the paparazzi, um, international arms brokers, the pharmaceutical industry, and two scorned lovers. Um, Princess Diana had left someone recently mm -hmm. to be with Dodi Alfied, who, of course, was also killed in, the, in that horrible crash. And Kelly Fisher, who Dodi left to be mm -hmm. with Princess Diana. So these are my suspects and I pool the suspects and, you know, these are people who really had an ax to grind and I run them through, like, as I said, motive means an opportunity, which is the criminal process. And I let, uh, you know, I let the facts rock and roll. And it was what, it was a wild ride. I'll tell you. Cause I, I just, excuse the pun about the wild ride, but I mean, I did not see that coming. <laughs> I just didn't, I just realized what I said. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Princess Di and the royal family for saying that. I'm you sorry. Know, it, it's funny because the reason why my book is different is because I'm an American investigator. Okay. Yeah. And I, I don't, and to my knowledge, I'm the only American investigator. There might be other ones. Don't send me hate mail and say, well, I wrote a book on this too, you know. But I mean, to my knowledge, all of the major books that have been written on this have been from UK-based people or people mm -hmm. who have been based in England or that corner of the world, that section. And I am not. So I, I don't look at this through the lens of the royal family. I don't yeah. have a confirmation bias. I just let it fly. And um, this is why I come at things from a little bit, you know, a little bit of a different perspective. Well, let's start from the beginning. Let's you know to tell everybody about Diana and her background because a lot of this people aren't aware of, you know, how she grew up and stuff. You know what? What, a, what an interesting lady. Um, and it's really a shame that she's not around because I think that she would have really been into a lot of great causes, including the the COVID nineteen cause right now. But her background was. Uh, very interesting. She was born in Norf Norfolk on July 1st, 1961. And the common misconception of her is that she was a commoner. She was not a commoner. <laughs> I mean, she came, she came into, um, into the, uh, media scope or attention that everyone got when, of course, when she started her courtship with Prince Charles and she was doing uh, menial average jobs. She, her father, she's a Spencer. She, her father was the eighth Earl of Spencer. I mean, these, these people have, it can be argued that their bloodline is more Royal than the Royal family. Mm -hmm. They had gone through generations of Royal and careful breeding. Um, and if you go back far enough, and this just absolutely blew my mind, um, Prince Charles and Princess Diana 
are cousins. Wow. If you, if you go all the way back to 1327, because only a history geek like me would do this, right? Right. 1327, <laughs> Edward III um, ended up being proclaiming himself as king of England and the king of France. So Diana was royalty in both countries. She, so she was royalty in England, and she was also royal royalty in France. So the, the marriage was not a coincidence. Um, multiple times throughout history, cousins have married themselves. Mm -hmm. FDR married his cousin. Um, a lot of people don't know that. Again, history geeks like me would dig this nonsense up, but that's true. Um, Eleanor was born to Roosevelt, married to Roosevelt, died to Roosevelt. Woman never had to change her monogram, not once. <laughs> so this is common for people who have a bloodline that they feel is very, very special and they want to keep it. So um, let me see. There, there's a wild ride with, with Diana. Um, she was basically an unwanted child, which is really hard to imagine that you could have a beautiful little girl be unwanted. But Royal families are transfixed on having uh, sons to carry on the name. Okay. So the year before she's born, her family loses an infant son. So here she comes. And of course, she's not a son. She's a girl. Mm -hmm. So it was a disappointment to the family. And they threw it up in her face a few times. And they really should not have. That's a terrible thing to do to somebody. Right. She really lived with this, this shadow that, you know, she was unwanted. So her parents divorced when she's very young. Um, and her father was a wonderful man who was great to all the kids. Apparently the mother was not from everything that I'm gathering. Um, the father definitely had the means and the, uh, uh, he had the, the monetary means and the emotional means and to support the family. And he did a good job. Um, she, uh, got launched off to a, a variety of different schools where she was a horrible student. And they decided after her last finishing school that she was just writing letters home saying how miserable she was. And they said, you know what, look, we're just going to save the money and bring her home. So yeah, this is how she came into being when the media attention came. She was doing all of these, all of these non-royal jobs, these common jobs. So there's a lot more to the story. I'm going over some highlights here. Sure the, sure. the royal family had known, the queen had known the Spencers and all of the girls since they were in diapers. Again, this is English royalty knowing English royalty. So originally, um, Prince Charles was dating her sister, Sarah. And that was hot and heavy. And um, something was said. And these, like I said, royal breeding. All of these girls are virgins. They're all royal stock. They were all raised to be the suitors of royalty in some capacity. And to my knowledge, they all were. So he's 32 years old, 30 years old, I think, when he starts uh, his courtship with Sarah. He's involved elsewhere romantically with a, with a married woman. He has no interest in getting married. Mm -hmm. And he's being pressured by the queen. You need to sire sons to keep this going. So 
he's starting to, you know, court people and he ends up with, with Sarah and she either said something wrong in the media or something was made of something she said that was wrong. It's a little vague, but she got dropped. So now here comes Diana, who is now this a little while longer and she is a nice looking young girl and he catches her eye. Mm -hmm. So this is how their courtships started. So um, there's a lot going on here. 12 years difference between the two of them. And um, that's kind of the backstory. The queen actually selected Diana because she had all of the hallmarks of the future queen. You know, they have rules. They have very, very old rules. And she fit all of them. She was a royal stock. Um, she was very polite and well-mannered. Of course, she was raised that way. She was a virgin. Um, she had all of the hallmarks that the royal family would be looking for. So that's basically the backdrop on these two. Um, mm -hmm. They ended up getting married November of, uh, well, they first met in November of 77. Uh, they were engaged in February of 81. And they were married in July 29th of 81 to, in, a, in a fantastic wedding. That was, you know, I mean, I don't think everybody on the planet watched this wedding, this fairy tale wedding, you know, 3,500 guests at St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, 50 countries, 75, uh, 75, 75, 750 million people watched it, you know, for almost, almost, almost $50 million of their money because they're on, you know, they're not on dollars, but right. almost yeah. 50 million was spent on this, uh, on this extravaganza wedding, you know. Um, her gown alone was almost 20 grand. So this is, this is, this is quite a, quite a thing. So here's this 20 year old girl in this bizarre situation. Um, all of a sudden, you know, being thrust into the queen, being a future queen. And, you know, it's, it's, it took a toll on her. She battled depression. She had all kinds of problems. They fought almost daily because he was romantically involved elsewhere. And you know what? When you're going to get married, that's just not the right thing to do. So uh, <laughs> they, they had some issues coming forward, but they did get married. And um, Charles was able to fulfill his uh, royal duties of having two sons. And uh, I can't imagine they were in the same room long enough because the, yeah, the, the yeah. bad blood got so bad. Um, it was uh, it was really it's it's a very if it wasn't such a sad story it'd be it'd be comical. It really, it's really something else. You really can't make this up, folks. You just can't. You know. Now, didn't Charles get a wedding gift from Camilla? Yes, uh, they had. Uh, they got married and they were on their honeymoon, which was supposed to be, you know, of course, a very special time for them. And here comes these these cufflinks with two entwined C's that Charles, the letter C, not you know, mm -hmm. not the seven C's, the letter C. And, um, you know, he shows up at, at breakfast with these and she sees these and just flips out. She loses it. Um, and it was it was might have been, must have been quite a spectacle. Yeah, this. uh and the, the C that we keep talking about is a woman named Camilla Bowles. Mm -hmm. And she was married to a man named Andrew Parker Bowles, who was a lieutenant in the British Cavalry. So Charles had been tiptoeing around with her since 1971. So, you know, he really wanted to marry her, but she didn't fit 
the bill. Right. She obviously right. wasn't a virgin because she had sons. She obviously was divorced or would have been divorced to marry him. So there's a lot of royal crotch swapping going on here. <laughs> it's a, it's a very, very torrid, um, very, uh, very bad story, actually. So here's this young, naive girl, you know, being thrown into the midst of all of this, uh, of all of this, um, all of this situation, all of this, uh, the, the marriage, the pre-marriage, the post-marriage. It's, it's really, uh, it's really a, quite a story, you know. You know, isn't that true, though, in the royal family, though? I mean, I mean, the royal men, the, the princes will, will cheat on the wives. I mean, even, there's even reports of Prince Philip, you know, uh, dallying off to the side. You know, I, I had heard that. Of course, you never know what's true. And the bigger star you are, the more people are going to say things. They've said some things about Elvis that are just absolutely not true. But, you know, people are going to say what they're going to say. I, I Obviously, I can't tell. Right. I, you know, wasn't right. there. But, you know, I mean, from what I've read, yes, that's been, that has been rumored, you know. And that's really, that's a crappy thing to do, you know. But, you know, some <laughs> we have to come to the realization, folks, that there are bad people in this world and they don't mm -hmm. do nice things sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, with the with Diana, she you know not only was he cheating on her, but I mean she was crying out for help during all this time. I mean she she was really trying to get people's attention to say, "Hey, look, this isn't what it's supposed to be," and she really wasn't getting any help. No, she wasn't getting any help. Everyone was so busy telling her um, she was in severe depression. She threw herself down the stairs. You know, I mean, she, she has, she suffered from bulimia. I mean, it got to the point where her ribs were showing and, you know, everyone kept telling her how happy she should be. Mm -hmm. And you know what? She just wasn't. And, you know, the more that she cried out for help, the less people, uh, she tried to call off the wedding actually. So she's a very, very tormented soul. There's a, there's a, it was not a very, it was a happy time in everybody else's world on the outside of the castle, but it wasn't a very happy time for her. And she's saying, like in the blood, like the book says, she could turn on the charm when she had to do it. You know, when when even though she was unhappy, when she had to work, she she would work. You know, that smile would come on, and 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 she'd do her thing. Like like the, the, there wasn't a care in the world. But I mean, underneath all that, she was uh, like you say, she was miserable. Yeah, she was. Um, she really she had that electrical something, that electric smile, those piercing blue eyes, and she knew how to turn it on. And, you know, she could do it and she really could have got an Academy Award for how sad she was and how happy she portrayed herself to be. And what was interesting with that, too, here, Charles is cheating with Camilla the whole time. And then when she started having affairs, that was a big no-no. Yeah, it was it got to the point where, it, it, you know, I mean, there were situations going on, coming out in the tabloids. Recordings of this, recordings of that, which I won't so I won't soil myself with that. But um, it got to the point where people in the country, in England, and in you know other parts of the UK, were taking sides, mm -hmm. and it got so terrible that the Queen finally had to say, "You know, <laughs> this poor Queen, this lady's been through some stuff." You know, what I mean, yeah. she's she, this is no dumb lady. She's pretty sharp. She must have clunked their heads together like Mo in a Three Stooges movie. You know, 
uh, or Three Stooges episode. And she basically said, all right, you guys are done. Go do your thing. So one went one way, one went the other way. And when, you know, Princess Diana had a few lovers on the QT and, um, of course, you know, what was good for one was good for the other. But when right. it was discovered, it seemed to be a little bit more shocking with Diana, mm -hmm. you know. And I don't care what I don't care what system of government you have. If you're a capitalist society or a communist society, you want your loyal subjects to be as complacent as possible. Mm -hmm. You don't want uprisings. You don't want turmoil because those that's hard to rule. So they want to rule with ease. So they'll do just about anything they can to keep us, you know, mm -hmm. complacent and obedient. And that was not happening in England at that time. So the split, I think, was necessary. Um, and they went their separate ways and did their separate things. And boy, did the tabloids have fun with that. Well, and yeah, and then in truth, you know, where Charles was concerned, too, being older, and he really, <laughs> he's not a fun guy. You know, when, when you look at the big picture, I mean, well, I'm not saying he's not a fun guy, but he's he's more um he's more of an introvert, really. Yeah, and you can always, even, the, yeah, that's you know, absolutely right. He's very yeah. um, you know, I mean, she would like she'd walk into a room and just light it up. Mm -hmm. you know, she had that that smile and that fantastic plume of blonde hair, and you know, I mean, she just you couldn't take your eyes off of her, you know. Mm -hmm. And he was more of a standoffish very kind of stiff you know his actions mirrored very much of what the royal family is mm -hmm. and, and i think that diana actually made them look bad and i don't think she did it on purpose i just think that's the way she was they get off the plane and of course the royal family is very very stiff very distant and here she is shaking hands and kissing babies and you know i mean it was she actually made them look bad um, mm -hmm. just because she was so open and so warm, you know, so a lot of, there's a big the dichotomy of this relationship was really apparent, I think. Well, yeah. And then he was not very happy either because she was getting all the spotlight away from him. And here he's, the, he's the next King of England. I'm sure there was a little bit of jealousy. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they, let me see, how do I say this without saying it? Um, wrong. I would say that they were infatuated with Diana, and I think that they were also res uh, filled with resentment because she was, I mean, she was like a female Elvis. You couldn't take your eyes yeah. off of her, you know? So, you know, later on, after the divorce happens, you know, she becomes this crushed shell of a person, and she reinvents herself into this model slash mother Teresa mm -hmm. who loves the world. And I mean, how are you going to take spotlight off this woman? And you just can't, you just can't. And of course, you know, in this world, we just don't know what to do with nice things. Mm -hmm. Just like your parents used to say, this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> well, you know what we do it. We're a sick breed, you know, I mean, and I put that in the book, you know, we, we, we see a nice little butterfly fluttering around the garden, you know, a beautiful, bright colored butterfly. We have to go touch its wings. And then it never flies again. You know, so we do the same right. thing with fireflies or lightning bugs, whatever they call them in your neck of the woods. And, you know, we find the brightest one and we have to capture it in a jar and we have to put it next to our nightstand and that becomes its coffin. Mm -hmm. We just don't know what to do with things that are 
bright and pretty and good, I guess. I guess it's a character flaw with us. Mm-hmm. And boy, that that was uh, very telling with, uh, you know, with, with Diana. So what was the straw that broke the camel's back for the queen to give the okay to the divorce? Well, as I said, the um, they live by by rules, very very old rules, very stiff and rigid rules. And the I think that what was going on, I think they were going their separate ways anyway. I think that the queen just basically, and I still don't think we know the whole story. There's some things that go on behind the walls of the castle that nobody's going to know except the people behind the walls of the castle. Mm-hmm. And I think that it got to the point where the disgrace and the shame that was brought upon that, you know, the people involved, including your Royal family. I think that she felt, like I said, this is a smart lady. I think she felt the best thing to do was to, uh, announce the split and, uh, make these two behave like adults because mm-hmm. I don't think that to that point, I don't think that they were. Okay. So she divorces Charles and, and, and then what happens? Well, she divorces Charles, and she has a couple of uh, love affairs along the way. I mean, here she is. She's She's got a lot going on from childhood. Behind those gorgeous blue eyes, she's got some stuff going on. She still does not feel loved. She still does not feel wanted. And this goes, this goes all the way back to her childhood because she was unwanted as a child. And those formative years are not kind when they're not kind. So she's trying to find this, um, and she's trying to find this, uh, this magical man, this one guy, you know? So she, uh, she goes through four or five different lovers and this or that. And, um, it was, it was, it was <laughs> um, there was one that was rumored to be, uh, one of the, the uh, father to one of the sons. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, who knows if that's true or not. I won't speculate because I think that these two boys have been through enough. You know, mm-hmm. they don't need that speculation. But so she finally finally comes. She's reinventing herself. Right. Right. And so she's going through these love affairs and she's trying to really find herself. And she got a she got a speech coach and she decided to reinvent herself with causes. And she ran across uh, a man named finally she she found a man named Hasnut Khan and Hasnut Khan, uh, was, uh, he was a cardiologist and he was Pakistani and they met each other when she was doing her, uh, she used to go see AIDS patients and okay, people yeah. in the hospital. And that's how they met each other. And her nickname for him was Mr. Wonderful. And they were together for, I think a little over two years and it was on the side and she wanted to marry again and she wanted to move on with her life. Mm-hmm. And Hasnett was a nice man. He was good to her. And her butler came out and said that he used to sneak her in and out, him in and out of the palace under the cover of night so they can have some time together and some privacy. Problem was, he was a very, uh, a very famous cardiologist. Mm-hmm. And he would have had no problem you know, being with her or marrying her if she wasn't who she was. He said, I just, I just cannot take the media. I can't take the media spotlight. It's going to destroy me. He said, I'm not built for it. So Diana had an interesting double-edged sword with the media. She could, boy, the charm that she could turn on, 
You know, I mean, she could, if she wanted a media in an event or something like that, a spectacle, mm-hmm. she, all she had to do was snap her fingers. That's the upside of it. The downside of it is you can't turn it off. Mm-hmm. So she basically told him, look, either we're on or we're not. And he said, well, we're on, but I can't, I can't step into the spotlight that you have. So, you know, she, um, she ended it and she, her next marital or uh, romantic fling was with son of an Egyptian billionaire named Dodie Alfied. Dodie was the opposite of another nice guy. Um, he was the opposite of Hasnet Khan. He liked mm-hmm. the spotlight. He wasn't afraid of the spotlight. Uh, he had come from, and again, all of these people know each other. Muhammad Alfiad is Dodi's father, and he is, uh, he's a billionaire, and he owns a lot of financial interests in England. Mm-hmm. Muhammad Alfiad had known the Spencers since Diana was in diapers as well. These people all know each other. The royal family knew the Alfieds. The Spencers knew the Alfieds. I mean, you know, I mean, right. there's only so much. There's only so much um, high society to be found in that little country. You know, in England, it's kind of a small little country. I don't think you could have the whole place carpeted, but I think it's a little smaller than we're used to over here in the States. So Dodie is uh, kind of a global playboy. And he uh, he was a film producer. And uh, the list of successful Hollywood films that he was associated with were Breaking Glass, Hook, uh, Chariots of Fire, The Scarlet Letter, um, FX one and two, the guy was really good at what he did. And he really, that was, that was his thing. He really wanted to do that for a living. And that that's the path that he wanted. He was very, very close to his father. Mm-hmm. And he was also his father's right-hand man at the, uh, at the Ritz in mm-hmm. the hotel Ritz in Paris. Of course, it was a hotel that his father owned. His father also owned, um, Harris department store at that time. He no longer does. Uh, he's, he's got to be well into his nineties. Now, um, I actually tried to interview him. I couldn't find him, you know, um, it was quite a, I actually got a hold of a private investigator to try and find him. Couldn't find him. So when, if I ever find this guy, and there's a couple people like that, that I tried to, tried to interview. If I ever find these people, I'm going to find out what the hell their secret is because I'd like to disappear sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. That'd be great. <laughs> but um, so these people know each other. And um, Diana starts a, uh, starts a relationship with him. And they met when they were children. They met all the way back in the early 80s. They, they really started their romance Um you know, much later on in life, I think Dodie was 41, something like that. So they made each other and they realized that they're both available. And um, Dodie had dropped Kelly Fisher, who was uh, an American model. He had bought her a gigantic diamond ring and she was a very successful model. And he said, look, I'll put you on this huge allowance. You don't have to work anymore. Oh, by the way, here's a, here's a beachside 
palatial home and here's a diamond ring and we're going to get married. So, um, Dodie was not instrumental in, uh, Diana leaving Hasnet, mm -hmm. but the opposite can't be said. Um, when he realized that Princess Diana was available, <clears throat> you know, um, Kelly Fisher wasn't the relationship with Kelly wasn't, wasn't long for the world. So, mm -hmm. um, so this is how this happened. This, this relationship happened. So, you know, we're dealing with, and I think Diana was 36, Dodie was 41, you know, and you're dealing with, they were together four weeks mm -hmm. and the crash happened. So we're, you know, we're dealing with the early summer of 1990, uh, 97, which is hard to imagine. Right. I remember where I was when this happened, you know? And uh, that you have these little moments in time. I'll never forget where I was when Elvis died. Right. You know, it's it was. We have these moments. Like you have these moments where the world just gasps. You know, and you say, "Oh my God!" You know, look what just happened. And uh, I'll never forget it. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but you know what? It was. <laughs> time gets behind us, doesn't it? Now. Diana was doing all this humanitarian work, like with the landmines and all this stuff that she was doing. And of course, the AIDS, you know, the AIDS patients. And during this time, she was getting threatening phone calls and stuff, wasn't she? She was getting a lot of threats uh, that we know now that we had no idea what was going on then. And I think that it's a twofold thing. I think that we weren't meant to know. And I also think that the people who could have told us didn't know. Mm -hmm. So I think it's sometimes things are held from us from those two points of view. You know, in the case of Elvis Presley, information is just now coming out that we never knew happened. And, you know, of course, the fascination with him continues and with Diana, too. You know, she was getting threats and and uh, all kinds of things. Her first her first. Uh, um, She's very big into her causes, and her first real big cause was the was AIDS, mm -hmm. and uh, she was really not rubbing the uh, pharmaceutical industry the right way. Their fear—you have to put yourself back in this time. This is, you know, the the eighties. You know, we had the big AIDS scare, and it's continuing now. You know, and this was early 1990, 91, 92, and AIDS is a big thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's all over the news, much like COVID right now is all over the news. And um, the, the drug companies are trying to come up with a vaccine to sell to countries to vaccinate everybody against this horrible disease. This doesn't even sound familiar. It's almost like we snip back in time, you know. I mean, it's funny because the same thing's going on today. So... They're working on this vaccine and all of these treatments for this horrible disease. And um, here she comes and she's going around the world with this humanitarian effort and she's breaking all kinds of more of medical mores. She's coming in, she's holding babies with, that, have, that have AIDS. Mm -hmm. She's touching AIDS patients. She's being seen doing this. And they're... The pharmaceutical industry is flipping out. They're like, how are we supposed, we have to keep the fear up to make this sale of this product work. And she's out there undermining our efforts. 
So she got she got spoken to a few times. So she I think she got scared off to the point where she found another cause. Mm-hmm. A cause that was a little bit more not as hot button, I would say, a little more vanilla. And of course the next cause was landmines. What? She just yeah. hated the fact that after warring countries were done with their wars, these landmines were in the ground, and decades later, people were stumbling upon them and being blown to bits or being maimed. So she thought that this would be, she heard about this, somebody brought this to her attention, and she mm-hmm. was so moved mm-hmm. by it, this became the focus of her life. And she, uh, that was the next stop in her life was an anti-landmine ca- campaign, which was very successful that's when it really started to get ramped up mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. threats and the media attention um it was uh it was a, it was a very very bad bad situation july of 1996 of course she died in august and august july of 1996 she's got a media spectacle going an anti-landmine campaign in angola where she's being She's being, uh, it's a media event. She's being filmed and photographed with children who are missing arms and legs and all kinds of horrible things have happened to these children. And she starts getting threats. There's a man named Alan McGregor who was in charge of guarding her when she traveled abroad. And another guy, I tried tried so hard to interview that guy, you have no idea. There are articles all over in the British tabloids and the British newspapers of uh, of him giving interviews. Well, you know what? I couldn't get one. So, and I hired three private detectives. No one can find him. So he was, uh, he was protecting Diana during this time. And it got to the point where the threats got to be so bad against her that they had to pay a hundred million pounds to people who wanted to kill her in Angola. So they would leave her alone and not attack her and not go after her. So that's something that never came out until Alan McGregor. And, and, you know, I'll tell you what, Alan, if you're out there, talk to me. All right. I've been trying like hell to get a hold. (laughs) I just can't find this guy, but he, he, um, you know, he really, uh, gave an interesting part of the puzzle in his interviews. And of course, his interviews are, are documented in my book. So, and this anti landmine campaign was officially called the ICBL, the International Campaign to Ban Landmines, the ICBL, and mm-hmm. had great traction. Mm-hmm. In June of 97, in Ottawa, where their meeting was, they had 100 countries on board. So, Behind this anti-landmine campaign, there were rumors that a small arms ban was coming. And this horrified people around the world. So this sets the stage for these horrible things that are to that are to happen to her. That she's going, she's going, this is gonna befell her at some point. And I think that um this was no accident. I'll put it to you this way. Um, it's, uh, it's really a very sad thing that someone couldn't have taken her aside 
and said, you know, you're upsetting the balance of power in this world. And when I say balance of power, the majority of, of people around the world, 99.9% of us are really kind people and we wouldn't bother a fly. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. by and large, we're respectful of each other, but we're also a little naive, I think. We have to come to the realization of the fact that there are bad people in this world and they do not share our values and they don't care about what we think. And these people can be hired. And when you're running around upsetting the balance of power in the globe, and when I say that, this is what I mean. There are countries in this world who, whose entire economy, their entire gross national product, revolves around the sale of arms, be it legally or illegally. Hmm. And here she is out there threatening that that uh, financial lifeline with these bans that she's putting on. And this is not going to end well. Mm-hmm. So you look mm-hmm. at all of these people that she has run across, the royal family in the pharmaceutical country, or, uh, pharmaceutical industry, and the arms brokers, the military industrial complex as a whole, mm-hmm. she is the main obstacle to their, uh, their dreams of billions and billions of profits and dollars. But was she, I mean, was her whole thing, was, was she really naive about it? I mean, when she started to get these threats, she had to wonder who was doing it or have an idea who was doing it. I, I think, yeah, I just can't imagine why she would not back off. And, they, and, you know, it's funny. The threats that she got actually came from when, from within the UK. And um, they, were, they were warning her, you need to knock this off. And there were three, there were three specific threats that happened. Um, the, two by, in the newspaper and one directly by phone. Um, in the newspaper... There was a British defense minister named Earl Howe, and this was shortly after her trip to Angola in July of 96. Um, and she and here's a quote. Diana was, quote, ill-advised and is not being helpful or realistic. We do not need a loose cannon like her, end quote. She should have gotten the hint. Right. Another one came out in the newspaper, and I list these in importance in order of importance. Peter Vigors was a politician member and a member of parliament, and he said, "Again, quote, I have it written down here. I couldn't remember all this. You know, I have I have little notes here." So <laughs> it says, "She said, um, Diana's efforts did not add much to the sum of human knowledge. So they did not think much of her running around out there, putting her nose in situations where it didn't belong." Finally, the third one happened by phone, and it's mentioned at the in the uh, the inquest on page one hundred nine. If you want to bore yourself to tears, go look at the Paget report, which is basically the British damage control document. In February of ninety seven, this is very short time before her death. British Arms Forces Minister Nicholas Soames phones Kensington Palace and said, and this is chilling. Quote, don't meddle in things you know nothing about because accidents can happen. Whoa. She should have got the hint. I just think that she was either too, too, uh, I think she knew the world was depending on her. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was one of her friends were there when that happened, and they, they said that she turned absolutely pale, you know. 
she definitely knew this was dangerous. This was not a shock to her, but I don't, I think that she was so invested in this cause, she was not going to back down. So this is where my book is a little different. We've been taught and told in the Easter bunny story, mm -hmm. <laughs> I call them Easter bunny stories, that the royal family killed her because of something that happened with Charles or right. some, some royal crotch swapping going on or something like that. Right. And I will tell everyone that if she was convinced that MI6 was going to kill her, mm -hmm. and she actually penned a letter and gave it to her, her attorney. Um, they have, uh, British is a little, they're a little different. Their lawyers are twofold. They have a solicitor and a barrister. Mm -hmm. We don't have that in America. The barrister studies the law. The solicitor goes to court. So she gave it to her solicitor who held this letter and she's basically letter basically said if anything's going to happen to me it's going to come from from the royal family and mi6 wrong right. no not even close because you know, i'll tell you what if mi6 wants you dead you'll be dead in an hour okay um there are real 007s in this world okay um and someone who's going to warn you three separate times they're uh -huh. not going to kill they're not going to warn you they're just going to kill you if they want you dead, they're trying to save your life. She was just not getting it. They were trying to keep her alive. You need to stop this. And I think that maybe the Intel community who all share secrets and in Intel, I think that they knew and they were hearing things. Uh -huh. And I think that they knew at that point, there was no way to keep this woman alive if she kept going. Right. So I think that all of this backstory you know, I mean, this, uh, I would love for this movie to come out. Let's, let's do the, Charlotte, let's do this in a movie. We should do all of these books in a little mini series for who that would be or cool. Something. That would be really no cool. No one would, no one would believe the backstory. You can't write this story. So, so this, here yeah, we this are. Is some crazy, this is James Bond stuff. It really is. And you know, the, the, the best stories are true ones. And this, this really is, this is a, a true story that, uh, you couldn't, you couldn't replicate. So all of this is happening in 97, getting towards the, uh, getting towards the summer of 97 and coming up to the, uh, the quote unquote big event. So, okay. Did, and then if I, if I remember correctly from the book, she had a dossier on these, on, on, on these people. Because um, from what I read from what you wrote, she had handed this dossier off to her friend, who in turn took it over to her place and hid it. Oh, you really read this book closely, didn't you? Told you, wow. I read. Man, I guess you did. You really I, dug into it. I got really got but, in. I really got into it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's nice to hear somebody like my work. That's great. She did. She had dirt on a lot of people. A lot of people in tiptoeing and dabbling in a lot of things. And she was going, she had a dossier of facts on people and she was going to publish it. So you talk about bad blood. Uh -huh. I mean, there's no way she could not know. I mean, she just, uh, she had to know something was going to happen. It was almost like she was either, she had a death wish or she was daring them to do it. Right. That I'm at a loss to figure out which, you know, well, I mean, maybe she figured that because she was so famous that nobody would do it. That they, that they really actually wouldn't do it. 
Well, Elvis thought the same way. <laughs> it, does, it, it, it doesn't work. You haven't read that book yet. You think this one? I read part work. of no, I, I read part of it, and then I read all the Diana book. So I, I read part of Elvis. Yeah, it doesn't matter where you are or who you are. You know, if you're poking the wrong nose the wrong way, you know. And I don't think that all people were murdered. I'm, I'm a student of history, so I haven't just looked right. into these people. I'm a student of history, and it's it's just I'm a history nerd. You know, I'm more of a I'm really not a conspiracy guy. I'm kind of a I'm a history detective, you know, after the case goes cold decades later, when no one's looking, I'm looking when deathbed confessions come out, when things get declassified, I'm one of these people who put things together, you know, I don't know. I'm just weird. You know, I mean, some people skydive. I do this. <laughs> so then, you have to, be, you have to be a geek like me to make this. Happen. Once we get into the accident part, there was something else in, the, in there that stood out to me. And I know it stood out to you or you wouldn't have put it in the book, you know, but we'll get there as, as we're building this up. But I mean, it's, it's an, uh, the whole thing's an eye opener. You know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, if I had gotten threats, like the, the threat she, she, she got, I, I would have backed off. I mean, it's obvious somebody was after her. There's no question about it. I would have uh, jumped but, out of my skin to get away yeah, from her. Yeah. Her. Yeah. But she kept pushing and pushing and pushing. For whatever reason, you know, it's one thing that it's one thing to have causes like that. It's another thing that to push yourself into a corner where, where where you're getting these threats. I can't explain it. I don't. I I just I have no explanation for it. And I thought about it and thought about it. I mean, when you're. And again, I think that these these threats. I think that these people were were genuinely concerned for her. Mm -hmm. You need to knock this off. You know. And I just don't think, you know, maybe she was awfully pretty and awfully dumb. Who knows? I really don't know. <laughs> I can't speak for her. But like I said, I just let the evidence go where it goes. I can't speak for her. I have no idea what she was thinking. And it seems like from, from what I read, too, is that she was ab about to get out of the public eye because she made that last phone call that night to some that, that, that reporter, whoever it was. Saying that at the end of the year or whatever, that that, that she was going to be stepping away from, from from the public. Absolutely, I think that she was looking for a more normal. I think it, you know, people's lives they go through phases in life, and um, you know, I'm the same way. I was going to write a book after this on JFK and then do Tesla, and I decided to not do the JFK book. Right, this phase of my life is over. Okay. And I think she felt the same thing. You can only donate and dedicate yourself because it takes a lot out of you, you know? Yeah. Um, I know it was 4,000 hours for this book. 4,000 hours is a lot of work. I can't even imagine. And Elvis was 10 years. My research into Elvis is huge. I can't even imagine the amount of time that she put into her life and her causes. And I think that you reach a point where you say, you know what? I've done all I can do. It's time to move on. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where she was. I think that she was at that point in life where she wanted to settle down and have a normal life and, uh, and get on with it. She met a halfway decent guy who treated her well and she wanted the world to turn. So she was making it. And that's absolutely right. She was going to make an announcement that she was stepping away from things. Well, isn't that kind of like what, what the Royal family was hoping would happen? 
you know, that she would meet somebody, settle down and go away. Oh God. Yes. They, <laughs> they were, um, they were so hoping that she would just move on and this scorned divorcee would move on with her life and find somebody and just, just move on in life. So she wasn't stuck in this, this hate rut that she was in sparring in the, in the tabloids with Charles and, and this and that. And, uh, one of the reasons that, and it's a good thing you brought that up. Um, and I write this in the book and I say this a lot. The Royal family only has a handful of jobs. Their number one job is to have boys and keep the monarchy going from now to kingdom come okay that's what they're transfixed on that's their job that's what they do okay the next thing they do is uh appear you know in ceremonies and um as dignitaries and they make appearances for the royal family and for the country and uh, that's the second thing they do the third thing they do which i think they're the best at is act weird and stay away from everybody <laughs> yeah all right. You, you, you're not finding them hanging around, you know, you're not, they, they, they stay away from people, you know, uh -huh. they enjoy the fruits of the vine and they're gone. They're not hanging around, you know, they're on vacation, they're shooting, they're playing polo. Uh -huh. So they act stuffy and stay away from everybody. The reason I, the first, they were the first people to fall out of suspects for the murder because they had everything to lose and nothing to gain mm -hmm. at all by trifling with Diana. They so wanted her to shut up and go away so they could keep, you know, the balance of power going. And they were, you know, 150 years from now, the story of Princess Diana will be there, but it will be smaller than it ever was. And the monarchy will still be there. Right. right. So they don't do things for today. They're looking 500 years in the future. In 500 years, I don't know if we'll know who Princess Diana was. So they're looking at the end game. They, yeah. they, they weren't trifling with her. I think that they knew, this queen's a smart lady. I think that they knew if she kept going the way she was going, someone was going to take her out. And I think that they were actually, this is my assumption, I have no, no fact to back this up. I think that they were behind the people warning her because yeah, they were, they were pissed at her. You know, okay. they were not happy with this bad blood at all. It, it was a tarnish. They don't want the tarnish, but they also, you know, these are old friends. They've known each other. Diana's whole lifetime. They're not going to conspire to murder her. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So again, and that I think is a difference between looking at it with, uh, with jaundice eyes. Right. I look at it from an American researcher point of view. I don't look at it through the lens of the Royal family and boy, I hate the Royal family. And how can I make Diana's murder into this? <laughs> you know, right. I don't look at it that way. Right, right, right. So she, um, she's involved with Dodie and they get to that night of the accident. And there was a lot of issue because Do didn't Dodie want to um, propose to her? That's that's what was reported. Of course, you hear different people say different things. People right. say lots of different things. Um, 
You want me to run down the Easter Bunny story and then tell the truth? Go for it. Okay. <laughs> see the Easter Bunny story, you know. Um, okay. So the Easter Bunny story was that Diana was, um, was pregnant mm -hmm. with Dodie's child and that he had previously gone to a jeweler to have a, this gigantic engagement ring made and he was going to propose to her that night and um that's what they were doing in paris and they you know they were they died in this car accident because the paparazzi was following them because they wanted pictures and uh you know it's really hard for me to actually get that out of my mouth without laughing um, right. because that's you really have to be a special kind of idiot if you believe that that's the whole story, especially with everything that we've covered, you know, with all of the threats and all of the people who, who are just, uh, had angst with her, you know, so that's what they said, you know, <laughs> you know, Charlotte, we've been talking all this time. Should we tell people how to get the book? Go ahead. Go ahead. That'll, that'll, work. that'll work. Well, let's do this. Get a piece of paper and a pencil, and I'll tell you how to get this book, and I'll be back in a minute. Okay, I want everybody to be prepared, because if you buy it on Amazon, you're going to pay too much for it. All right? So get your get your pencil ready, and I'll come back, and I'll revisit that in a minute. Okay. Um, so, okay, now to the real story. Um, and this isn't idle talk. This is real talk. Okay, this is what happened. Princess Diana couldn't have been pregnant with Dodie's child and showing. It would have been impossible. They were together exactly four weeks. At four weeks, you don't have a baby bump at four weeks. Mm -hmm. Your child is about the size of an apple seed, all right, or a poppy seed. If she was pregnant and if she was showing, as the photo photos suggest, that kid was not Dodie's. It's just, it's science. That's just the way it is. You can't argue with biology. It's just the way it is. So... I, I think that someone added that in there mm -hmm. to distract people and take them away from the story. I don't think she was ever pregnant. I think that that was just something that was an add-on based on a fictitious photograph that they saw. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I have to tell everybody that Princess Diana was using a body double. She was using the pictures some of the pictures, not all, some of the pictures that were being sold to the tabloids by the paparazzi were not Princess Diana. And I have those pictures in my book. Huh. How I know this is that my, my book was done. My book was done. I was getting ready to publish and I made this stupid mistake. You know, we all do these things and we say, oh man, I wish I had that one to do over again. Well, this was mine. I made the mistake of mentioning on a social media platform that my next book is going to be out soon and it's going to be on Princess Diana. Some person pops me up and says, we live in a little village in France and my mother, who just is near, now dearly departed, has been investigating this for 10 years. Would you like uh -huh. the information? And I'm like, oh, no, you know, I really don't. Because I knew what it meant. I was going right, to have right. to completely rewrite everything, you know? So I gave them the information. They sent me a packet of information, which was, it's pretty interesting stuff. I now think that there's, there's things in my book that nobody else has because of that. And it was spooky. No return address. 
it comes to a P.O. box that I had arranged for it to be delivered to. And I go back to the media platform, social media platform, to tell them that it arrived and the, the user was gone. Wow. They were wow. they were gone. They were off the social media platform entirely. Their account, everything. So they did not want to be in touch with me for whatever reason. Right. Right. So in this information comes pictures. And one of the things in the description was this woman's name was her body double was named Sue. And these pictures in my book, we have been told are Princess Diana, and they're clearly not Princess Diana. And I never, you know, I never looked at that as, uh, as close as uh, I probably should have. You just take for granted that, you know, these, these are Princess Diana. But she right. was, her, her life was being so threatened that she had to use body doubles. And a lot of people have used body doubles over the years. You know, um, <laughs> Stalin, Elvis, you know, I mean, all of these people have used body doubles. Right. So, I mean, she was she was trying to fool some people to do some things. So the real story is that she was not pregnant. It's it's, it's again, it's an Easter Bunny story. Right. That should be taken right out of history and put next to Grimm's fairy tales. Okay. So Dodie does want to propose to her, I believe. All right. So I think part of that story is true. So they decide to go to a restaurant that night uh, at quarter to ten. Uh, called Chez Bonnet. It's a very posh restaurant in Paris. And the Doty, the Elfieds have their own security team. These are very wealthy, very important people. So they have their own security team for the family as well as the security team at the Ritz, mm -hmm. you know, the hotel. So there are three cars. There's a lead car. There's the, the car that Diana and Doty are in. And then there's a car behind. This is the same thing. You watch presidential um, motorcades. They do that for a reason. So they have people on site who secure the site, and they give word back to the motorcade, and they say, okay, this site is secure. We can bring them in. Mm -hmm. okay. um, I saw this firsthand, actually. I was, I was in Sanibel in Florida, and Mike Pence came in for dinner with his wife. And the security team came first and checked it out. And here I am and Mike Pence is 30 feet away from me. It's very bizarre stuff. So this really happens. So the security team goes to Ches Bonet and they're looking around and they say, uh, yeah, no, this ain't happening. They're seeing people in the crowd. There's a busy restaurant that don't, don't fit. Uh -huh. I mean, this is Paris. This is, this is end of, end of August this is summer. Uh -huh. They see people there with thick heavy coats on stocking caps and they're like what the hell is going on with these people <laughs> so they say you know probably not a good idea and he also hey i also have to say this at this point the security team at the ritz the alfied security team and the paparazzi all know each other they know each other very well because this isn't the only celebrity that they're stalking for pictures so Someone will give the paparazzi a tip. They'll get the picture. They'll sell the picture. They'll give them a kickback. Sure. So they know these people very well. And they know that these people that are seeing, and there are pictures of them in my book, <clears throat> excuse me, they know that these people do not fit. So they said, you know, probably not a good idea. Let's abort this plan. So they go back to the Ritz and they go up to the, to the suite, which they're often at. 
Dodie calls his father and says, you know, look, there's something going on. We feel more safe here. And the father said, yes, stay right there. Don't worry about it. He said, you've got everything you need right there. It's so dangerous. Stay right there. So, and that's where they're going to stay. So the driver of the car, Henri Paul, gets discharged for the night. Well, unfortunately, that's not where the story ends. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, I'm going to grab a drink here. Bear with me a second. So that's not where the story ends. Mm -hmm. Now these people who they spotted at Chesbonet are now in the Ritz. And now they're in the lobby at the Ritz. And security is freaking out. Who are these people? What are they doing here? So the driver, Henri Paul, is contacted by... And Henri Paul's an interesting person. He is being paid for information... He was, he was head of security at the Reds. Okay. He was one of the Alfied people because they own that hotel. And he was being paid by multiple security agencies and spy networks around the world for information on people who would stay there. And there are numerous deposit sums in the bank accounts of Henri Paul from MI6, the CIA, you know, these all of these countries around the world know that they can trust this guy for intel, and then he's been trusted for years. As a matter of fact, his file at MI6 was confirmed by uh, a, um, an MI6 agent who was retired. So we know, we, we have a, it's verified that that's what this guy was. So they get a hold of him and they say, look, the princess is in grave danger. You've got to get her out of there. Mm -hmm. So they said... Mm -hmm. They said, look, you, we've secured a path, take her out the back. Um, and they told him the route to take. And they said, you know, we've secured it. There's no one there. You won't have any problems. So Henri Paul tells Dodie, he goes out the front door of the Ritz and puts on a big show that they're going to be coming out soon. They're not. He sneaks them out the back door. Okay. So there's four people in this car. Henri Paul, the driver. Um, um, oh, obviously, Princess Diana, Dodie, and Trevor Reese Jones, who is the bodyguard for for the, the couple. Mm -hmm. There is no lead car. There's no follow-up car. This is supposed to be very much on the QT. It wasn't 500 feet down the road that they realized they got double-crossed. <laughs> now we have motorcycles of people dressed in black wielding weapons, trying to shoot the princess. And this information came from, well, <laughs> numerous people. I have their names here. I won't bore you with them. They're in the book. And they have all given testimony that was ignored, actually, after the fact. Hmm. So they, they start down this, uh, this route, and there are two tunnels in this route. And the first tunnel was Riverside Expressway. And let me see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven people gave testimony to the French government and the French police of what they saw. This is what they saw. Five to six motorcycles, very large motorcycles, people dressed in black, and they're threatening the princess. So here, here we are, this driver has been put in this situation where he's got to protect the princess. What do you do? There's never been a car made that's going to outrun a motorcycle. It's just not the way it's going to. The power to weight ratio is always on the motorcycle. So here's this guy 
trying to defend the princess and keep her alive, and he's trying to outrun these motorcycles. So this is going on until they come into the second tunnel. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the crash happens in the second tunnel. Uh, now, by the time they get into the second tunnel, and again, there are witnesses that corroborate this story as well, and they're, they're quoted in my book. By the time they get to the second tunnel, the motorcycles are in front of the car trying to slow them down, and they're flashing lights in, their, in the driver's eyes. And this sounds very James Bond, doesn't it? But these tactical flashlights are now being sold in civilian use today to disorient an attacker. And they're advertised on television all the time. Sure. Well, they, they really had those. And this is what they're doing to this poor guy who's charged with the responsibility of keeping the, this woman alive. So as they enter the tunnel, they had this, <laughs> this mysterious white Fiat Uno who is kind of meandering in front of the tunnel. And the witnesses are trying to figure out what's going on with this car. It's going slow, and it's kind of in an odd position. <laughs> Here comes the Mercedes S280, and it just clips the back of the car. And people think that this was just by accident. This was, this was not by accident. Um, they did a pit maneuver on the car. And pit maneuver stands for, just because I'm a geek, I had to look this up, precision immobilization technique. And they've been doing this on NASCAR for years. Now the police are doing it. If you're if you're getting a car at high rate of speed and you just clip the back the back panel, it'll start the car to spin and swerve. All right, that car was there to spin the car, spin it out if they needed and if they couldn't get a shot off. Uh -huh. So this car spins and rams the thirteenth pillar inside the tunnel, and of course the rest is history. Right. And I raised a couple very interesting points. There's no mention of the $22,000 that was put in the driver's pockets that night. Um, there's no mention of, uh, there's been no investigation into the concrete pillar to the angle that it was, the crash happened, uh, the impact of the crash, you know, witnesses say that they were going 55, 60 miles an hour. Well, the crash test rating on that car was above that. Why did these people die in this crash when this car was built to to withstand this? Right. right. So I'm not the only one who asked that question. Um, Mercedes-Benz actually asked that question, and they asked to uh, check the car for defects because they knew what happened it was very, very strange. And they were, they were refused by the French government and the British government. The only people who inspected that car were paid not to find anything. So the Easter Bunny story continues. Okay, right, this right. is part of the Easter Bunny story. The French said the speedometer was stuck at 121 miles an hour, or their equivalent to that. The British claimed it was stuck at 144 miles an hour, or the equivalent to that. They, you know, they're on the metric system, we're not. Mercedes-Benz finally had to go public because now they're getting a black eye over this. Right, right. And they said, when an impact happens, the needle goes back to zero. So everyone is lying in this. I think the two governments knew it was a hit, and now they're in damage control mode. They're trying to cover this up. So I told everybody I was going to tell them how to get the book, and I'll jump in. Go for okay. It. 
go to whomurderedbooks.com. That's my website, whomurderedbooks.com. Um, buy the book there. You know, it's around, it's a little under 20 bucks and I can get it to you. I'll get it to you before Christmas now because it's the seventh. And I, you know, I'll leave an autograph it for you. It's tell me how you want me to autograph it, and I'll be happy to do that for you. You want to spend too much? Go to Amazon. Be my guest. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon doesn't need your money. Believe me, they've got enough money. So, whomurderedbooks.com. That's how you can. That's how you can get the book. So, the crash happens, and all of a sudden, it becomes a Marx Brothers movie. Ambulances show up. They're spending more time with the dead bodies than they are the most famous woman in the world. Right. Right. And um, the long circulated photograph of Princess Diana dead in the car is completely phony. It was staged somewhere. And you've seen the. Yeah. Are you there? Murphy's Law in effect again, guys. Uh, the ruins, but anyway, this book is fantastic. So then he gets back Going in other places. Oh, it's not it. dead. In <clears throat> we lost you. Are we back? We lost you for a second. Yeah, that's okay, Charlotte. I've been lost for years, so <laughs> <laughs> now I'm back. Okay, what was the last thing that you heard? Uh, the Keystone Cop kind of thing going on. Oh, yeah, all of a sudden it becomes a Keystone Cops movie or like a Marx Brothers movie where. The ambulances show up and they forgot how to do their job, you know, and their phony photographs at circle in the, the lamestream media. Um, and it, it, they, they spend more time tagging the dead bodies than they are tending to the princess in the backseat. So after the crash, and of course there are witnesses, and I know one of them actually, um, who said it was two hours to get this woman to a hospital that was the equivalent of four miles away, mm -hmm. which is incredible when you stop to think that people are running the, the two minute mile, right? That she would, it was the most famous woman in the world. And nobody has any vested interest in getting her to a hospital. And I've heard the story that, Oh, well, they do things different over there. And you know, they, they, they try to stabilize her and this and that. And I don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Ronald Reagan had the exact same injury and uh -huh. survived it. And I think that Princess Diana was in better shape than Ronald Reagan when he survived it. I don't know if they just all of a sudden forgot how to do their job uh -huh. or they were in no hurry to help her. And then, uh, of course, someone put forth a theory, and you know how theories are, um, that she was pregnant and they had to give her an abortion in the ambulance. I've heard uh -huh. that. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. People say a lot of things. I'm driven by evidence. I'm not driven by conjecture. It may or may not have happened. All I know is that by the time she got to the hospital, she was, she was basically dead. You know, her life was ebbing away as they're pulling into the hospital. And um, this does not belong on the resume of anybody who knows anything about medical science. Right. Um, I'm really good friends with uh, Dr. Sarah Wecht, who's a forensic, forensic pathologist uh, and has been, geez, Dr. Wecht's 90, 91 now, and he's been doing this a good long time. And he said that that was, well, I can't use the words that he said. I wouldn't, but um, he thought it was ridiculous. 
yeah. that someone or anyone should wait, have to be put on hold with that injury. And he said flat out, she would have survived if she'd gotten sooner medical care. So um, Dr. Weck has been at my disposal for all of my books, and I can trust him to give me the straight dope on really what's going on. There's very few people like that out there. Right, right, right. So she, when I say this in the book, and it's funny, and but I don't mean it to be funny. She'd have been better off ordering a pizza, which delivers a thir- which guarantees a thirty minute delivery time, and riding back with a driver. She'd still be alive. We wouldn't be having this conversation because so she it's was either still, in- she was still alive when after the crash when they put her in the ambulance. She she was moaning, wasn't she? She was, and. Um, she absolutely was, and there were there were witnesses to to corroborate that. Um, one which one witness, his name was Eric Patel, P E T L. I don't know how they would pronounce that in France, but he saw the crash. He tried to get the police. He went to back then they had phone boxes where you would you know go and make a phone call because this you know uh-huh. cell phones were not really around. You know maybe the elite had them, but we didn't. Right. Um, <laughs> And he was ignored. They thought he was insane. Um, there was a chauffeur who was waiting to get his guests back out of a restaurant. His name was Clive uh, Gorvudu. I kind of love that last name, Gorvudu. Very cool last name. He saw the entire thing, and he gave his – He gave, um, of course, Clive's not around anymore. Uh, he's no longer with us. He's passed. He gave a full accounting of what happened and what she looked like and everything. Um, Jack and Robin Firestone are American tourists in the tunnel when the crash happens. I've spoken to Jack Firestone. He's got his own book out, by the way, which is a very interesting read. Jack's a nice guy, really a nice guy. He gave me his account as to what happened. And he said, you know, she certainly could have been saved in the conversations I had with him. And the final one is, and this is, I don't know if anybody knows about this or not. The guy's name was Stanley Colbreth, and he was an American attorney in Ohio. He was the first person on the scene. And, of course, police had arrived at that point in time because there were police in the area. The police refused to let him open the door to help Diana. Wow. What is going on? You know, most famous woman in the world. And they're letting her sit there. So the picture in my book of her is her upright, wincing in pain. Dead bodies don't wince in pain. So she's uh-huh. obviously alive. And someone is trying to attend to her through the glass because they wouldn't let anybody touch her. Which is incredible, really, that this could happen uh-huh. in what we consider to be a very civilized country. So... um. So she goes to the hospital, basically uh, dead on arrival. Within 20 minutes, they call in specialized equipment to scrub the tunnel clean and reopen the tunnel, which is incredible to me. Okay. Here's the car. You know, they make crime scene tape for a reason, folks. (laughs) It sounds funny, but it's not a funny situation. Here they are. They've got this car on a flatbed, and they're dragging all the the evidence through the streets of Paris Uh at 2 in the morning. No one secured the crime scene. Now we've called in specialized equipment to scrub the tunnel down. There's been no investigation into the car, really. There's been no investigation into the crash. There's been no investigation into the concrete pillar, which would have told a ton of things. 
And here we are. Case closed. Next case. And at that, for somebody who looks at things with a very jaundiced eye, for me, that's very difficult for me to to me to wrap right. my brain around. Okay. Um, this has happened before. Elvis Presley's death scene was sanitized. There were evidence of a struggle. There were syringes at Elvis's death scene. Graceland gets locked down by the police. They take the dead body to the um, Baptist Memorial Hospital. The EMTs come back to get their to get their their uh, equipment. The entire place has been sanitized. By the time the investigators show up, the bed has been made. Everything's been cleaned up. Well, if the place is locked down by Memphis police, who did it? Did they do it? No one seems to know who ordered it. No one seems to know who ordered this the, the san this sanitation equipment uh -huh. at the in the tunnel. This is you know I mean JFK is another one. JFK gets his brains blown out. They take him into Parkland. What Secret Service doing? They've got a bucket of water and two sponges, and they're they're washing the blood splatter out of the limousine. Highly trained professionals here, right? Right. Why do they make crime scene tape again? <laughs> and it's just it's just unbelievable. And and you know on and on and on. Um, they just <laughs> uh, Marilyn Monroe is another one. This is another one. Actually, is a distant cousin of mine. If you read my bio, but don't ever read my bio. You get bored. But you know, I mean, the investigators show up. Not only has her body been repositioned, the ho the housekeeper is doing the laundry from the death scene. And how how we know, obviously, I've been schooled in a few things now through Dr. Weck. They had this thing called liver mortis, liver right. mortis, which is basically the water pump in your body, which is your heart. When it stops pumping, your blood pools at the lowest level. And it causes a purplish hue on your skin, in the exterior of your skin. Well, <laughs> Marilyn Monroe's purplish hue was on the cheek that was up, not the cheek that was down. So the whole thing was positioned, repositioned, and sanitized. So I call these things in the book, and I, I won't give the whole thing away, but these are just a smattering right. of, of right. information. I call these threads of insanity because... All of these mysterious deaths that I've investigated tend to have these threads, you know, and, and on and on and on. The, the uh, planet evidence, the syringes at Elvis's death scene, the oh, pregnancy yeah. photo at Diana, the pristine bullet with JFK, um, Meryl Monroe's death. This one really, I mean, this one really takes the, puts the cherry on the parfait. This, this, you know, I really have to laugh at this one. Not only is it sanitized, the death scene, not only has she been repositioned, uh -huh. but they uh -huh. staged a break-in, and the glass is uh -huh. on the wrong side of the house. When you break in, the glass goes inside. The right. glass was outside right. of the house. So all of these famous deaths all have, you know, you can't make this up. You know, I mean, these things happened. I mean, it's not a wild conspiracy. These things happened, you know. So all of these famous people tend to die differently than we do. So it just it's incredible to me who is an evidence-based person that all of this can happen 
and there's no one asking questions. Well, I agree 100%. Now, there was a little bit more involved you know, from reading your book. There's something that happened before all this went down at a meeting. And oh, I, I skipped that, didn't I? Yeah. It's related to your Facebook thing. This is why this whole thing with the fiat makes a lot of sense. What a goofball I am. I skipped right over that, didn't I? That's okay. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> That's my job to point these things out. Um, she died in July, the very last day of July in 97. In June of 97, they had a very important meeting, and it's called the Bilderberg Conference. And the Bilderberg Conference, for those people who didn't know, who have no idea what this is, and I didn't actually until this, I have to admit, you know, not everybody knows everything, and I certainly don't. It was the 45th meeting of the Bilderberg Conference, and there's roughly 150 members of the European and North American conglomerate of military, industrial elite, political figures, financial figures. Basically, these people will run the world when no one's looking. They make up the rules, and it doesn't have to go to a voting booth. Okay, so if you ever think that your vote matters, investigate the Bilderberg Group just a little bit, along with, oh, boy, I'm not going to get into the other ones. You poke around, you'll find it. So this is some information that was mailed to me in this packet that this person was at the Bilderberg Conference, and they overheard a meeting of several people discussing their greatest, uh, the greatest impedance to their riches. And it was Princess Diana. And they overheard three people, two have been identified, discussing how they were going to get rid of her. And here we have, what, 46 days later, she was dead of very suspicious circumstances. Right. Um, that, that's covered in the book, and it's actually, it's laid out very well. In the book. It is. It's yeah, very well. And the interesting part is the part about the fiat, because there was a fiat involved in the accident itself, and wasn't one of the guys there at that at that meeting? Wasn't he a president over at Fiat? He was. Yeah, the, the man has been. Um, he's departed now, but he was the one in the group where that discussion broke out who flipped out when they started discussing and he wanted no part of it, but yeah. yeah, you're right. It's, that's a very interesting parallel. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, there are things in this book you're not going to find anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and you, I got lucky. A lot of it is great research. I got lucky. These people reached out to me and sent me this information and sent me these pictures. And you know what? I can't give them credit because I don't know who the hell they are. Right. You know? <laughs> they just kind of vanished. You know, and um, I couldn't even get back to him and tell him that the packet was received. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where this came from. Um, like I said, every now and then you get lucky, and I got lucky with some of this information. So essentially, she pissed off the wrong people, and it wasn't. I love the way you go down and you deduce who she pissed off. I hate to use the word pissed off because they're going to get me on YouTube, but she angered the wrong people. And you go down to deduce this. Now, what a lot of people don't realize either is Dodie was supposed to be married on the day that he, what was it, met Diana or the day of or, or something he was doing with Diana. 
he broke off his relationship with the other gal on their wedding day. The day that their relationship became known to the public okay. was the day that should have been the honeymoon with Kelly Fisher. Yeah. And the bad blood that was, I mean, you really got to feel bad for Kelly Fisher. I mean, mm -hmm. poor gal did nothing. And um, she actually filed a, a, a lawsuit against Doty for, I don't know, something. And then, of course, when Doty ended up, you know, deceased, that didn't go anywhere. But you really have to feel sorry for her because the poor gal did nothing wrong. And here yeah. she is thrust yeah. into this crazy situation, you know. So um, I did not reach out to her for a comment. Um, I think she suffered enough. She doesn't need to rehash horrible things. So I kind of right. left that. Right. You know, well, like gal. I said, you do such a great job of, of going suspect by suspect and, and, and laying the case out. You know, I try. Uh, one of the things that really stuck out, again, was the ignored evidence when they started to piece all of this together. Um, immediately after, 24 hours after, and we haven't, we ha I have to get back to the crash because the goofiness started right after the ambulance. Right. Okay. Um, I didn't forget that. I just took a little segue there. <laughs> um, 24 hours later, all of a sudden there are photography studios in London, both of them who are broken into two hours apart and the places were ransacked and these were these people's houses. And the only thing that was stolen in both accounts, one that happened at 1 a.m., one that happened at 3 a.m., is and i have the names here but i won't bother i'll list them in the book um the only thing that was taken were computer discs hard drives cameras and photographs of the crash that were going to be vended these people were part of the paparazzi and they had somehow been given or took pictures that were going to come out uh to the american media and they were not supposed to come out so all of that information was taken so we go back to the crash. Now the investigation is happening and they're trying to piece this together. So the police show up and by now the Fiat and all of the dark figures driving the motorbikes or motorcycles over in England, they call them motorbikes. They've disappeared. They all went in different directions according to the witnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. Now what's happened is 10 minutes behind the paparazzi have figured out, wait a minute, they're gone and they have, they have motorcycles and motorbikes, but they can't keep up with the speed of the, of the cars. So of course they're five to 10 minutes behind. So by the time the police show up, they see the paparazzi milling around the car. So they put two and two together and come up with 147, 50 and a half and they arrest, they, they take the wrong people into custody. And they do, they do terrible things to these. I mean, they do a cavity search, they strip search them, they take their cameras. Um, and then they realize we have no case here. Uh -huh. They kept them there for 30 hours and they interviewed them separately and together and separately again. And they started to realize, wait a minute, these people were not there. So the first news stories come out that the paparazzi caused the crash and this and that and the other thing. And again, we have an Easter bunny story on our hands. Then after 30 hours, they release them because they have no reason to hold them because they've done nothing wrong. See, in some parts of the world, the law still works. 
<laughs> so then they say, wait a minute, we've got a problem. We've got to find somebody to hang this on. Is there a dead guy involved? Yeah, there is. What about this driver? Mm -hmm. So they released to the waiting world all of the media, which was easily controlled at the time, that Henri Paul was, quote, unquote, drunk as a pig, and he was to blame for the accident. Completely false. The toxicology report on Henri Paul hadn't even come back yet. They had no evidence to support that. Uh, he never had a trial. His information was never fully collected, just like Lee Harvey Oswald. They blamed the dead guy. Oswald never had a trial. Right. Oswald's information wasn't, wasn't really complete yet. So there's a lot of parallels between the investigation of one and of, of the Princess Diana inquest mm -hmm. by, by the French and the, and the British that parallel the Warren Commission report almost to a T, and I lay it out in the book, and I'm not going to go into it here because we have time constraints. How much time do we have left, by the way? Can we do another half hour? I'm good. Okay. Oh, good, good, good. If you're willing to, I'm willing to. No. Giving me a microphone is like giving a peeping Tom Visine. I could go for hours. <laughs> I warned the audience last night it might go an hour and a half. It might go two hours. So we're good. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> oh, where would we be without humor in a very unhumorous situation? I so, have a very laid back show. Okay. So it's just, <laughs> we, we go with the flow here, you know, like last night, the headphones died. I had to shut the computer down, like right in the beginning of the show. And then everybody's sitting there watching the black screen. And then I pop back up and they roll there. So, you know, everybody's aware of what happens here. Well, it makes life interesting, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So here comes the evidence on Henri Paul, and they set into motion the Keystone cops again, who try doggedly to link Henri Paul to some sort of booze to, to corroborate the story that he was, quote-unquote, drunk as a pig, although I've never seen a pig drunk, so I'm not quite sure what that means. But that's what was proclaimed in all of the media so they go back to his apartment and they start interviewing his his best friend claude garek i know i'm gonna murder that name i'm sorry people murder my name all the time and uh, he was henry paul's best friend who insisted he wasn't a heavy drinker matter of fact they have him on video closed circuit tv security camera in the lobby of the ritz before he got in the car this oh. guy's not drunk They've got him tying his shoes, walking up and down stairs, taking his watch. Um, there's no way that he could have been the level of intoxication that they claim. In fact, the, sh the, the, <laughs> the investigation team was so slipshod that there's a picture in my book of the blood sample that was taken from Henri Paul, and his name is misspelled. You can't make this up, folks. All of a sudden... People who were highly trained to do this job every day suddenly forgot what they were doing. It's almost as though it was their first day on the job, <clears throat> but it wasn't. So they interview his best friend, and they go back to his, his flat. Henri Paul had a flat, and they look everywhere, and they're trying to find this treasure trove of alcohol that just simply doesn't exist. They find... Um, any, anybody remember Pepsi Light? That was yes. a big drink back then. That was his favorite drink. 
they found a lot of Pepsi light. They found uh, an uncorked bottle of champagne. Um, they're not finding anything that is going to link or make him drunk as whatever the hell drunk as a pig means. Right. So um, they got his bar bill and they, the father, uh, um, Muhammad Alfied, started his own research. And boy, did this guy do research. He spent like $15 million employing people to do research and his uh his research well, i'm glad someone did because neither government did mm-hmm. so um they found his bar bill and he was hanging out with a security team you know in the time that he was off he had been discharged from duty he had two ricards which are 42 percent hey, alcohol is, about two hours before the crash this is fascinating stuff so that's basically an anise flavored liqueur mm-hmm. two hours before the crash. You know, this is not going to make this guy quote unquote drunk as a pig. So we have a lot of inconsistencies here. So they couldn't find the information or the alcohol evidence that they were looking for the first time with Henri Paul's flat. So guess what? They go back to his apartment the next night and guess what they found? They found enough alcohol to supply Mardi Gras. They found this. They found that. Chips, dips, chains, whips. They found everything there. Well, it's pretty hard. It's pretty easy to find something when you're the one that put it there. Why didn't they find it the first time? You can't make this up. You just can't make this up. But they have to make this this narrative, this ridiculous concocted phony narrative work, right? Right. So... It's an interesting story. Like I said about Henri Paul, he is, he is uh, an intel agent for lots and lots of people, including MI6. He's also a licensed pilot. The week prior, he passed his pilot's license exam without problems. They claimed that he was on, he was on antidepressants. He was on this. He was on that. Well, he passed that exam. Why all of a sudden would he be on? It doesn't make any sense. It's 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 ridiculous, and this is a tie. This is a tie to the other book, "Who Murdered Elvis," where I say that El had gone through two physical examinations head to toe and passed them just prior to his death, when they said that he died of cardiac arrhythmia. Which is don't even get me going on that. We'll save that for another time. Okay, <laughs> so. Here they have this this ridiculous, fictitious story going on. So the French, I don't know what the French government were doing. I honestly think that they realized that she was knocked off and they're doing damage control. So they put together their dossier of information and um, contact the family. The family comes to take the body back to... Uh, back to Britain. And what's interesting to me, and this is really interesting, she's no longer part of the Royal family. In fact, they made a big deal of removing her, um, her status as a Royal. She's Mm -hmm. a princess of Wales, but she's not her Royal Highness anymore. They removed that. But as soon as her body hits Britain, take control of the body. Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, very, very, 
very very interesting now the french and the the french and the british um they have a storied past uh all the way back to 1109 uh they fought 29 wars with each other and um the french haven't really been on the receiving end i think they won one war and there's not tremendous there's a lot of bad blood still it's better now especially after world war ii right um but there's there's a lot going on behind the scenes these two governments tolerate each other but i would lie, be lying if they said they were best of friends so whatever is going on behind the scenes is enough to make these two governments cooperate and lockstep i think that they both knew what happened but they certainly couldn't bring that out to the to john q public there's no way i mean right um the truth is only meant for certain people to hear you know or they would people would go apoplectic if they came out and said that, that you know that she'd been knocked off by oh could you imagine this no way we couldn't handle it so they get the information over and um the timing of the death was very very substantial um and the information that was tallied afterwards Princess Diana had to die before September 19th of that year because that was the third meeting of oh. the international ban landmines where they were going to ink it into law. Without Princess Diana there, she was the big spokesperson. The media never covered it, and President Clinton actually was the only Western leader to withdraw from it, and it kind of fell apart. That was not meant to happen. That was not meant to be inked for for some reason so so there's a lot there's a lot of moving parts here and then people start to investigate the car but it wasn't the it wasn't the automaker which you think would have investigated the car this happened from some people in in britain who years and years after ran the vin number and came up with what really happened in the car that car in april 20th of that year was stripped for parts someone stole it out of a restaurant parking lot and the doors were stripped the electronic brain was stripped out of this car uh, uh, all kinds of uh relays and in, in uh electronic uh control units which would have handled the uh the steering which would have uh you know the uh power steering which would have made that function properly. The analog braking system, the engine was gone. I don't know how you put the most famous woman in the world in this car. I just have no idea how this works. So it was the only car left in the motor pool. It was not a secured vehicle. And the only one who brought the car up was a bellboy. Huh. We have no idea who this bellboy is. What are you doing putting this this woman the most famous woman in the world in this car and this thing folded up like an accordion yeah on impact and it should not have i know it and you know what so does mercedes-benz they know it because and they knew something was wrong immediately which is why they tried to investigate the car and they were refused so this is all covered in the pageant report uh -huh. which was which took place uh, years later, in which they investigated the death of 
of uh, Princess Diana. So it was an 832-page report done by the British Metropolitan Police. And, you know, when I mention these countries, um, I mentioned in the book that I'm also uh, related in part somewhere down the line to Winston Churchill. I'm cousins with lots of famous people. I'm not famous. They are. But I just happen to be related to these people. So when I mention these countries, it's not that I'm trying, it's not that I'm trying to cast shadows on them or say that they're bad governments or bad countries. These they are not, you know. It just so happens that the people involved in this investigation certainly didn't do a very good job. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, the, the British Coroner's Act of 1988, and I had to look this up because I'm a geek, right? I'm a history nerd. The British Coroner's Act of 1988 states that, quote, an inquest should be held as soon as practicable. Mm-hmm. Crash happened in, in uh, 1997. They had the inquest in 2004. Wow. I have I have no idea what their definition of as soon as practicable is, but I'm willing to bet it's sooner than 121 months, which is 10 years, one month, and three days. They couldn't put this off long enough. And all kinds of information was missing from this, from from this uh this this document uh in this inquest. It was it was laughable actually. And the real media didn't cover it. Journalists didn't cover it. The people who were invited to cover this were the, uh, the Royal family media. They have press that covers the Royal family. Right. And no one really asked a ton of questions. So, um, at the pageant report on page 426, and I know this is going to get boring, but this is geeks like me, like this stuff. So somebody out there, somebody out there like me, might uh, might like this information. Um, they said there were, <laughs> on page 426 <laughs> of the pageant report, it says that there were no mechanical issues found with the car. There were all kinds of issues with this car, as I already stated. Several fuses were missing. There was moisture in the brake fluid. There was a cut in the in the in one of the tires. The stored data codes in the computer and the electronic complor- control units were all missing. This thing, this was a death machine. I mean, this this was this was really. I mean, you can't write a script this bad. You you really really can't. So this woman never had a chance, and I think that a great majority of it was by design, and I think that some of it was just by luck. That. Yeah. Uh, but they even the investigators just well there were no investigators but. I raise in the book, they said that um, they said that Henri Paul had uh, carbon monoxide at a dangerously high level in his blood. He would never have been able to walk. I again, I know mm-hmm. people who do this for a living, and I run these things by them. This is just not me talking. This is professional talk from other people who I list in the in the book. He couldn't have had carbon monoxide poisoning like this it would have been impossible for the man to even be conscious obviously something was switched and it was intentional mm-hmm. and the reason <laughs> the reason i mentioned that they did such a slipshot job of uh of investigating this 
They had this thing in 1997 called DNA. Why is it that, to my knowledge, I'm the only one who raised this? Maybe someone else did. There's all kinds of blood in the car. Unfortunately, there is. Take a blood sample of Henri Paul in the car and see if the DNA matches the blood sample that you're testing. Kind of an obvious thing. No one did it. Now, I can't begin to tell you the, the dozens and dozens of investigators and high-ranking, high-level people who saw these documents. You mean to tell me that almost 25 years later, me, halfway around the world, has to bring this to their attention? Nah, not happening. They, they just decided not to do this. It was an investigation that was designed not to show anything, to shut people up and make them go on with their lives. So they were trying people who wanted answers, and um, they did a pretty good job. They did a pretty good job. But, I, you know, she comes up again, though, doesn't she? There's a new yeah. movie coming out about her. She's yes. in the press a lot. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think I saw a, a blurb somewhere that even her brother is now starting to question things. Oh, yeah. You know, I've, I've got a construction degree. I'll fly to France, and I'll examine that pillar. It's concrete. There's a chemical process called hydration that happens. Mm -hmm. And you mix different chemicals for different strengths of hydration. All those those concrete pillars were pour, pour, were poured in a row, so the twelfth and the fourteenth pillar would be the same as the thirteenth. Run tests on those. Those tests were never done. Why weren't right. they done? Because it was not supposed to show anything. It's very very obvious. You know, this wasn't an invest investigation. This was. I wouldn't be surprised if a cartoon bunny popped out of their mouth at this point. Hmm. I mean, this was just, this was possibly the worst investigation into any crash anywhere. So there's an awful lot um, in this book that uh, you won't find anywhere. You just won't find it anywhere. You know what? The book is fantastic. Like I keep saying that over and over. So you guys need to get the book because there's, there's so much detail in there. It is an eye opener and Steve has done a lot of, research in this book in fact when you got the uh the paperwork from those people you were already done with the books so you had to re redo it yeah the book was done yeah and this is i want to tell everybody that this is an ebook and audio book around the world so if somebody from another country is listening um obviously you're not gonna you're not gonna pay two hundred dollars to have me send you a copy of the book although you're right. welcome but you can catch it on ebook it's on kindle it's an audio book and i'll tell you what if I, it's not about money. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's just not about money. If I had the money to give this to everybody for free, I'd do it. Right. You know, I mean, I'm just driven to do this. You know, it has to be a bigger calling than money. You know, it's like Michelangelo didn't do the Sistine Chapel for the money. Right. You know, and Carol Shelby didn't do the GT40 for the money. He was, was obsessed by he was obsessed by speed. The other one yeah. was obsessed by art. I'm obsessed by this. You know, it's not if I sell a few books, that's cool. But it's, it's for me, it's more about the work and getting yeah. it out there, you know. Yeah. yeah. And Absolutely. it's a shame. There needs to be there needs to be more people out there like me. Um, 
one thing, a couple of things I wanted to say uh, before we probably are getting ready to close on this, aren't we? Yeah, just um, about, about 10 minutes. Mohammed El Fiyad, it was a real heartbreak when I couldn't interview this guy. This is a great man. Not only for the riches that he's managed to amass, not only for um, the things that he was able to accomplish. Uh, he employed, he spent millions of his own dollars of his own money and um, presented the evidence to the people. And this is why the the British decided to do the Paget report was to contradict or trip up his investigation. And they didn't do a very good job mm -hmm. because it was a damage control document, basically. And uh, as I said at the beginning of this, it doesn't matter what government you're in. They want compliance and obedience. They don't want uprising to deal with it. So they did this fantasy land document to pacify everybody so they would go back to sleep and stop acting quest asking questions but there is <clears throat> pardon me there is a film that was made and it's called unlawful killing and it was made based on the evidence that uh, muhammad elfie had uh had amassed mm -hmm. and it's i think it's still on youtube unlawful killing if you get a chance catch that and watch it it's it's really really well done and it lays out all of the information the parallels between the pageant report and the Warren Commission report are absolutely staggering. There's no doubt that they use the Warren Commission report as a pattern uh -huh. for what they did. Any doubt in your mind? You read the book. No, I don't have any doubt whatsoever. It, it's just it's just incredible. When you guys read the book, because Steve held back stuff. So when you guys read the book, it's going to blow your mind. It's mind blower. Okay. I'll give them a little bit of things that um, <laughs> a little bit of things that uh, parallels between the two. Right. Um, neither Henri Paul or William Greer were the usual drivers for JFK or for the princess. The drivers were different. Uh, John Morgan was a fantastic researcher in the princess Diana realm. He debunked 84 lies in the, in the pageant report. My friend who's now gone, these guys are both gone now. Um, they're both they're both departed. My friend Mark Lane debunked 106 lies in the Warren Commission report. And these two were harassed and discredited and pestered their entire lives. Um, and which is reason number 135 why I'm not getting into the JFK book that I wanted to write, even though I am holding a pretty substantial piece of the puzzle. Um they Henri Paul and Lee Harvey Oswald were both working for Intel. And I know people are going to say, oh, well, Oswald wasn't. The documents are in my book. They're in there, all right? It says right in there. They're confidential documents that have been released along with his Department of Defense card that clearly show that he was working for them in some capacity. You know, Don't send me hate mail and say, oh, well, this, that, and your thing. It's out there. I've got the document. Read it, okay? Uh, they were both discredited. Henri Paul and Lee Harvey Oswald were both discredited in the media. One was being drunk. The other one was being a crazy lone gunman, whatever you want to allege. Right, right. Um, <laughs> people disbelieved both the Warren Commission report 
and the uh, pageant report. As a matter of fact, both of them were reinvestigated. And when they reopened the cases to reinvestigate them, all of the information was overturned. The Warren, um, Mark Lane started the House Senate Committee on Assassination in 1975, 76, 76. I think the Church Commission came first. 76, they reinvestigated it and they determined that, yes, there was a second shooter on the grassy knoll. The government said it, not me. It's in history. I'm not making this up. The federal government said there was a second shooter. However, there was no effort made to track down or figure out who this person was. Same thing with Princess Diana in the pageant report. Mm -hmm. uh, it was later determined that Princess Diana had died in, and Doty had died in quote unquote, an unlawful killing, which was their version of manslaughter. However, no effort was ever made to investigate who those persons were or to bring them to justice. How convenient this world is. Yeah. So I, I, I will go both got it. Both got across the military industrial complex, princess Diana with her arms issue and, uh, JFK with his stance in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I will, I'll have to leave some of it out. Absolutely. But the level, the level of, inv I don't, I don't, I don't leave any stone unturned. You know, no, you I, don't. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. With the work you, you know, with all the work you put into that, how long, t tell me the truth for, for instance, I, how long did it take you to put this book together in reality? 4,000 hours. Oh my God. Yeah. I say it right in the beginning. It's, it's real close. It's like 3,900. Right. 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 That's, That's just incredible. My first project was on Elvis and Elvis was 10 years of researching and writing and you have to love it. You have to love this you or you to. won't do it. You know, right. I can remember lots and lots of times when my friends were at the beach, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I, I got my head down in, in, in these books and then I have to find the answer and then you have to be driven to do it. This is why I'm saying we should partner up, get a producer and put these things on the history channel. I say we should would, do it. Yeah, I agree. I'm people willing. would, people would love this. People information. would eat this stuff up. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. It's They're amazing how the it. truth sells, you know, if you can find it, they've made right. it a little, a little hard to find. Right. So, uh, there's, in, in closing, I would say that, um, Next time this happens, next time you have one of these uh, events happen, and it'll happen again. Right. Just smile and shake your head and just realize what's happening. Someone behind the scenes at a high level got pissed off and took somebody out. Because it's going to happen again. Right. It's going to happen again. The JFK thing, my next book was going to be Who Murdered JFK? And you know what? I'm just not going to put my nose in that trough. I'm friends with a lot of researchers and all they do is fight and argue with each other. Yeah. And 30 years from now, I don't need to be cross-examined for the next 30 years. You know, I have an interesting piece of that puzzle. My cousin, James Snyder was a presidential guard for four presidents. Huh. Died, la died last year. One of those presidents was Kennedy. He liked JFK very much. Um, was not his favorite president. Actually, Eisenhower was. He was in Washington when the assassination happened. He was not in Dallas. 
And his job was to guard the presidential limousine when it was brought back. He had the limousine for almost two hours to himself before the FBI took it over. He told me where all the bullet holes were. I was going to write that story. There were definitely bullet holes from the front and more than one. There were definitely two shooters. But I'm not going to write, I'll, I'll mention it, but I'm not going to write this book because I saw what Mark Lane went through. Mm-hmm. I saw how they tried to discredit him. I saw everything that these researchers go through. And you know what? I'm just not going to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm just not going to put my nose in that trough. I just can't do it. So my next book will be on Nikola Tesla. And I think that might be the end of it. Just like Princess Diana, the time has come to move on. Right, 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 right. That's cool, though. So um, we want to have you back on for Elvis. I would love to do Elvis. And you know what? We should have done the FDR book tonight because it is the 80th anniversary of the uh, Pearl Harbor Pearl attack. Harbor attack. That's right. That's right. So That's it, the FDR book is actually very interesting. FDR died in the presence of two foreign spies. And gee, you know, no one seems to talk about that. Hmm. Very interesting. You know, well, we're going to be, we're going to be seeing a lot of you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll be happy to come back anytime you want me on. Well, that's um, cool. And- we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get off tonight. I'll send you an email. I got some dates in January that are open if, if, if you're available you know, for to do Elvis, and we'll get you set up. I would love to do that. Yeah, I'm okay. taking – I've been doing a show a day, sometimes two show, shows a day, all the way into Christmas, and I'm taking about 10 days off. After that break, after after the new year, I'll be happy to come back on your show anytime you want me absolutely well thank you thank you so much i really appreciate it and um i've I've just i love the books i just love them and uh wow that's all i can say is the research you do is incredible and i keep saying it over and over but it's true you know i i I don't heap praise like that on just everybody so it's it's incredible well i appreciate that and i'll be back anytime you want me it's absolutely well you have a good rest of the evening okay take care charlotte all right bye-bye steve thank you so much bye bye all right, so that was an interesting show, pretty awesome. Um, tomorrow now we're kind of shifting gears back to back to paranormal stuff. Uh, Mara Muter is going to be on, and she's going to be talking about life after death. That'll be our regular time at six thirty. I wanted to um, talk to you guys about a couple things. I we have an event coming up on the nineteenth. It is for solstice, and uh, solstice is a time to reflect and 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 think about things past, present, and future. And so our one of our mediums from the California Haunts team is going to be available on the night on the evening on the nineteenth at seven p.m. Pacific, and she will do readings for folks on Zoom. And you are allowed three questions. You can ask her about anything you want, anything, past, present, future. Uh, if you have, you know, even if during the session a deceased relative or two comes through, she'll do a reading on that as well. So if you're interested in that, visit um, our website at www.californiahauntsradio.com and check out the, um, I think it's events at the top. I think it says event. I'm showing you what I mean. I'm tired today. Um, you go up to the top on, on the menu and go all the way over to the right. And I, I believe it says, oh, it says extras. That's what it is. It's extras. Then there's a thing that's, there's a have this. It's going to be a really cool event, and um, 
I'm looking forward to getting some questions answered too myself. But Stephanie's really cool, laid back, and, and she will answer your questions. And she's going to be using runes and tarot cards and some other stuff to answer answer questions. So, again, visit www.californiahauntsradio.com for that. Also on the California Haunts Radio site, you can see all these videos. You can go back and, and just check them all out. You can go back for the last year and a half and, and, and check all this stuff out. So if, if you know if you want to see you know what, what we've been having on in the past, that's the way to do it. Um, or you can Google YouTube, find us on YouTube, and, and go to our YouTube site. We are looking for subscribers. Okay, we're trying to build up our, our subscribers. You guys are doing really good at that, but we want to build up some more. I want to hit the, you know I want to hit that 200 mark maybe by the end of December. We'll see if we can do that. So what you know the way to do that is you. Word of mouth. Tell your friends. Tell your relatives. Tell everybody you can tell about this show, because we're you know we want to keep having these good guests on, and we want to keep doing this. Um, five and five. Share it with five people if you liked it. Share it with five people if you hate it. The other thing I want to point out too is that we are we are nonprofit. California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team is nonprofit, and all this comes out of my pocket. Anything for the team, like equipment, all that computers, mics, all this production stuff comes out of my pocket. And you know how how it goes. I mean, the stuff's not the stuff's not cheap. So if you could find it in your heart to donate a few dollars, I would really appreciate it. Um, I have two ways you can donate now because uh, people have said they were having trouble with the PayPal. You can go to paypal.me at California Haunts or if you have a Venmo, just go to Venmo, type in California Haunts, it'll pop right up and you can donate from there. See, real easy, but I would really appreciate it. But I want to thank you guys for coming and following us. I know last night was a nightmare, but we survived that. <laughs> um, that video, I forgot that I had run the guy, you know, the, the, the voicemail with the phone number. And so I, I have taken it off. It's, it's in a private thing on YouTube right now because I'm waiting now to, I just did a, a part, a thing where, where I took off the first uh, 10, 15 minutes of that video. It's going to be posted back up. So if you have friends that want to see that video, probably by Thursday or Friday, it'll be back up on YouTube to view. I even pulled it off Facebook for now because of the phone numbers. Okay. It did go up as a podcast, but again, I pulled the, I pulled the numbers off and put it up as a podcast last night. So that, that's going to be done. So we don't, I don't have to worry about that. But again, I want to thank you guys. and. Um, I will see you tomorrow for Life After Death with, with Baron Muter. Have a good evening, you guys.